0: Well, praise God, amen? Amen. Amen. So good to be here with you all this morning. We are back in Acts. We're going back to Acts. So turn there with me if you would. We'll continue our worship in Acts chapter 19. It's very exciting. Acts chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through the end of the chapter, which is verse 41. So if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts 19, 21 through 41, this is God's word. Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And, after, and having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while, Now, about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he had gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd, saying that things made with hands are not God's. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis would be considered worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, is even about to be brought down from her majesty, When they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed in with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs were friends of his sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the meeting was in confusion. The majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. Since the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew... "'A single cry from them all arose from them all "'as they shouted for about two hours, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' "'Now, after calming the crowd, the city clerk said, "'Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all "'who does not know that the city of the Ephesians "'is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis "'and the image which fell down from heaven? "'So, since these are undeniable facts, "'you ought to keep calm, do nothing rash.' For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session, the procouncils are available. Let them bring charges against one another. If you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful meeting. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's event, since there is no cause for which we can give is an account for this disorderly gathering, disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the meeting. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to get back into Acts. We thank you so much for uh, all the ways that you bless us, mostly through your word and just your instruction and, of course, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can be seated. That was a long one. All right, well, in the hours right before the betrayal and arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ, he gathered his disciples uh, together to encourage them and to comfort them and strengthen them, knowing full well that he would soon be leaving them and returning to his Father in heaven. He'd been telling them that this would happen, but they just couldn't fathom and they couldn't comprehend the fact that their rabbi, their teacher, their Lord, and the Messiah would soon leave them. But he said, little children... I'm with you a little while longer. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In fact, my father, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He told them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. But he's completely honest with them, and amidst all the comfort and encouragement. He says something that had to absolutely rock them. Not only am I going to be leaving this earth and ascending back up into heaven, but things aren't going to be easy for you guys. The rest of your lives on earth are going to be really, really difficult. In fact, when I leave, you will be hated by the world, just as I was. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hates you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He said, remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they, would, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake. They'll do this because they do not know the one who sent me. He then reemphasizes the promise of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. And this is exactly what we've seen in our time thus far in Acts, right? By way of review, since it's been a whole summer, remember this. The Lord Jesus, he ascends back up to the right hand of the Father after being crucified, after giving his life a ransom for many as a perfect sacrifice, after being betrayed by one of the twelve, after being arrested in the dead of night by the leaders of his own people who would strike him and spit upon him and condemn him to death and deliver him over to the hands of lawless men who would then continue to mock him and whip him and strike him, and scourge him, and pay foe homage to him as the king of the Jews before nailing him to a cross, a cross where he would die a criminal's death, all while bearing the full weight of the righteous wrath of his Father in heaven, the full weight of sin for all who would believe in him and call upon his name for salvation, where he would be separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity so that those who would come to him by Faith alone would never have to be, as he was offered as a, a pleasing sacrifice that was accepted by the Father as he raised his son from the dead, his son who did ascend back up to his right hand, and who did and continues to indwell those who believe in him and love him, who did indwell those too who would be his witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, those who would be hated by this world, those who would go on to be persecuted for his namesake, knowing full well that his word would still go forth. And really, that's what we've seen in Acts as we've studied it these past couple of years. Again, we, we've seen what one commentator called the unstoppable word, the unstoppable word word, the unstoppable gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you just heard, by the way, the good news of his sacrificial death, his burial and resurrection for sinners, the gospel which this world, this evil, wicked world system has never been able to extinguish no matter how hard it has tried. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Well, in the first 19 chapters, we... We've noticed a pattern has begun to manifest itself here. Persecution, then gospel proclamation. Persecution, then gospel permeation. Persecution, then gospel propagation. Acts 1, Jesus ascends. He says, wait for the Spirit to come. Acts 2, the promised Holy Spirit does come at Pentecost. He indwells the believers there. Acts 3, right away, they begin bearing witness to the perfect life, the sacrificial death, the subsequent burial, the triumphant resurrection, and the glorious ascension of the Son of God, the Messiah. They're performing miraculous signs and wonders which validate this message that they're bringing. People start to believe by the thousands. Acts 4, they're arrested by the Jewish authorities. Acts 5, they're imprisoned by these authorities. They're beaten by these same authorities who said, we strictly commanded you, not to continue teaching in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and an intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Acts chapter 6, the word of God kept on spreading. The number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. A great many of the priests were coming, becoming obedient to the faith. Acts 8, Stephen is murdered. He's stoned to death by a bloodthirsty mob. The church is being severely persecuted. It's being ravaged by one Saul of Tarsus. Chapter 9, God says, okay, that'll be enough of that. You know what? I'm going to save this guy. I'm going to indwell him with my same spirit. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. So... The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria was having peace, being built up. Going on in the fear of the Lord, it says in chapter 9, and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it continued to multiply. Acts 11, King Herod puts the apostle Peter in prison. He kills James, the brother of John, with the sword. Kills him dead. Chapter 12, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and multiplied. Acts 15, Paul, after being uh, converted, Saul, now Paul, converted by grace alone, through faith alone, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, he travels all around the Roman Empire preaching the same message that you just heard, telling people how they too can be saved from the wrath to come. He's imprisoned, he's beaten, he's bloodied, he's stoned, he was left for dead in Lystra, but he gets back up and he goes right back into the city right back into Lystra, where they just stoned him, continuing to preach the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles alike, planting churches, which we are told, in Acts chapter 16, we're being strengthened in the faith, we're abounding in number daily. Acts 17 and 18, he goes to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, then he goes back down to Caesarea, he visits his sending church in Antioch, then he comes back, To Ephesus, where he preaches and teaches for over two years, not without hardship or opposition. But Luke tells us that through these efforts, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. He says in Acts 19, verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Are you starting to see the pattern here? do you see how this testimony could be a tremendous encouragement to the persecuted church and every generation that followed? The, the word keeps growing. They keep killing us. The message just spreads that much more. Well, that's the book of Acts. And now here we are this morning, right back in Ephesus, where Paul, among many adversaries, among, uh, amidst much hatred and persecution, continues to be faithful in his witness of the gospel. So how will it turn out? Would this be the time when the evil world system finally prevails? Will the flame of the gospel and the flame of the word of God finally be extinguished? Well, let's find out. Verse 21, uh, point 2 in your outline. Verse 21 says this, Now, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. After having, and having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, this is really fascinating the more you look into it. He's in Ephesus. During his time in Ephesus, though he's teaching and preaching for hours a day in the hall of Tyrannus, he's also writing, and specifically to the church in Corinth, where he was just a few years before. He stayed there a year and a half. Church out there in Corinth was also growing. The gospel was extending out to the community, but as with any church, they had their issues. There were some within the church who were uh, caught up in gross immorality. Some were misusing doctrine to dominate others. Some were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were abusing spiritual gifts. Wolves and false teachers had come in seeking to lead the flock astray, and Paul had heard about all this while he was in Ephesus. So he writes them. And he says, you know, I heard from Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. He says to the Corinthians, you know what? I'm going to come visit you. I'm going I'm to come see you. I'm going to come soon if the Lord permits. He says, I'm, I'm staying in Ephesus until the Passover because there's an open door. But there are also many adversaries. So he hangs back until, one, he walks through that open door, and two, even more strategically, until they have the opportunity to receive this rebuke-filled letter, which includes his instruction for how to remedy these problems, okay? He stays back. He waits for Titus to come and tell him how this letter was received. He waits. He waits. Then he begins his journey back to Achaia goes through Macedonia. He goes up to Troas, which we'll read about next week. Still no Titus. So he goes over to Macedonia. All the while, he's collecting a love offering for the poor back in Jerusalem. He's going to all these Gentile churches. He's collecting money for the the church back in Jerusalem. This is a marvelous marvelous display of Christian unity we'll talk more about next week. But he goes over to Macedonia. Finally, Titus shows up and says, man, that letter was well-received. Many people in that church have repented. They've turned. The, the troublemakers—they're mostly gone. This would be a great time for you to go back, Paul. They'd love to see you. They'd love to see you in Corinth. In fact, in what we would know as his second letter to the Corinthians, he says this: "But God, who comforts the humble, uh, comforts the humbled. Comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing." Your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So here we are in verse 21. Paul says, I'm going uh, to go through Macedonia, back to Acha- Achaia, where Corinth is. Along the way, I'm going to take up that offering, take it back to Jerusalem, then Rome. He says, I'm going to Rome. He wants to go to Rome. And, and everything goes according to plan until he gets to Jerusalem. Uh, He does end up going to Rome, but it's not the way that he thought he would. Uh, More on that in the coming weeks. For now, still in Ephesus. Okay, we're in Ephesus. The tail end of his time in Ephesus before he leaves for Corinth. Now, look at verse 23. Now, about that time. About what time? Well, about the time we just got done explaining. As Paul remained in Ephesus and prepared to leave for Macedonia. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, what is the way? What's the way? Capital W here. The way of the gospel. Yeah. The way of salvation, the euangelion, the good news of salvation and reconciliation of sinners to God through his Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who said of himself, I am the way. Not one of many ways, but the way. I am the way. The truth, the life. He said, nobody comes to the Father but through me that way. Let me just ask you this morning. Have you come to the Father through Jesus the Son? Are you on the way to salvation? Are you on the narrow narrow way to salvation? Have you been cleansed of your sin through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? There is no other way. Well, here Luke writes it. That time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. I always love how he writes this. No small. Oh, there was no small disturbance. No small dissension. No small argument between the two. What what he's saying here is there was a gigantic disturbance. It was a huge disruption. There was a huge commotion. The way experienced some real opposition, some real problems here. Some you will be persecuted for my namesake problems. Some... Don't be surprised when the world hates you kind of problems. Luke says, here they are. It says in verse 24, For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. In other words, the idol-making business was good. It was real good. This guy was a part of a, thri- a thriving trade that took advantage of religious pilgrims throughout that region who longed to pay homage to, or homage to, Uh, what many considered to be the most prevalent god throughout the whole Roman Empire, namely the goddess Artemis or Diana. Yes, she was the goddess of fertility. She was a multi-breasted mother of nature. Now, we talked about Ephesus quite a bit last spring, okay? But just to give you a refresher, this city was beautiful. It was beautiful, it was elegant, it was a sophisticated port city, which was really in its glory during this time. The city was clean, it was sanitary, it was pleasing to the eyes. It was a city that had far-reaching influence throughout the whole empire. It had large, beautiful buildings. It had this big stadium, which we'll get to in a moment here. It's said to uh, seat twenty-five to 50,000 people. That was huge during that time. They had this theater, which would keep people entertained. They had shrines and temples, which would keep the people pious. And this temple that housed the statue of Artemis in particular was one of the most magnificent in all the earth. In fact, it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's almost exactly the length and width of a football field. But what really made it stand out was these 127 columns. They're six feet in diameter, and they were 60 feet tall. And it was all made of marble. Can you imagine that? White marble. And it matched the rest of Ephesus. Uh, It said the entire city was a city built of marble. Marble paved the streets. It lined the foundations. It supported the monuments and channeled rainwater to the sea. Even the public toilets were constructed from polished marble. Now, that sounds nice. Quote, The city gleamed with white iridescence, as if to say to the world, This city will shine forever. Which is not true. Here's a picture of the temple today. Doesn't look like it's shining forever to me. Anyhow, back to this guy, Demetrius. Okay? He had a booming business. He made these little silver trinkets, and they were little silver idols that uh, were images of this temple Ar- Artemis. Uh, and Artemis. And he was peddling them throughout all of Asia. But you know what? As the way of salvation spread, old Demetrius started to see a dip in his sails. Okay, the sales report came back for the quarter, and things were not looking good. Okay, not in Ephesus or the other 33 shrines devoted to Artemis around the region here. So in verse 25, Luke says he calls a meeting. He calls a sales meeting. And uh, he gathered together the workers of similar trades, and he says, Men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. That's the first indication. He says, Smyrna sales are down 15% this year. Uh, Laodicea, Colossae, reporting 22% losses. (laughs) Thyatira, Pergamum, down almost 50%. (laughs) And what's his reason? Well, look at verse 26. As you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd, saying that things made with human hands are not God's. Remember, Luke told us uh, up in verse 10, all who lived throughout Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of God, right? Remember, after some Jewish exorcist tried to cast the demon out of a guy by saying, I implore you by Jesus whom Paul preaches, the demon says back to him, You know, I recognize Jesus. I know about Paul, but who are you? The guy leaps on them, and they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's why I called them the seven streaking sons of Sceva. Remember them? Well... Luke said in verse 17, this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus. And fear fell upon them, and and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. They were fearing the Lord. Not only that, but folks came into this town square, and they burnt all the idols and the books and the other things associated with their former way of life. So the word of the Lord was growing. It was growing mightily and prevailing, showing us again that it's the gospel that brings true change to a society and culture. Not reform, not elected officials, not governmental programs, but the transforming power of the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, for salvation. Well, Demetrius, he says, oh, this is not good. This is not good at all. He whips everyone into a frenzy, all his other tradesmen here. He says, Paul, he's going around and He's saying what we're doing here is a waste of time. He says that God's made with hands are no gods at all, and that's true. You know, any Pharisee worth his weight in salt would have known full well that Yahweh spoke this through his psalmist. Why do the nations ask, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. They have noses, but do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for, they, for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Isaiah said the same thing. Same uh, wood they're using to burn their, in their fireplace they're making gods out of, bowing down to them. Demi- uh, Paul knew this. And Demetrius knew that Paul knew this, and he knew that this is what Paul was teaching to his normal clientele here. He said, people are believing in Paul's teaching. They aren't buying our product anymore. He says in verse 27, not only is there a danger to this trade of ours uh, to fall into disrepute, but then he gets a little pious. Okay, here it comes. He says, not only is is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be considered as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, is even about to be brought down from her majesty. He has to cloak his, his frustrations in religiosity to get everyone riled up here. You see, that's what he's doing. This reminds me of the Jewish authorities back in John chapter 11, as they, when they sought to arrest Jesus, they, they said, uh, "John says, "Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, "What are we doing?" This guy is, is doing many signs. Note, note there, they didn't deny the signs uh, that they often begged for. Jesus did perform undeniable divine miracles. But the authenticating miracles from God weren't of interest to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. What was? Well, they said, If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place. In other words, our position, our authority, our temple, our nation. When they arrested him and killed him, they said, it was because he was a blasphemer of God. Remember, they tried to play religion. They tried to act like they were, they were religious, but that's, that wasn't what was motivating them. You know, like all false teachers and all charlatans, Demetrius began to sprinkle in a little spirituality into the mix as, as he sought to defend the honor of this great goddess. He says, He says, First and foremost, the numbers are slipping, okay? My my pocketbook's feeling a little light here, but let's not forget here. If we don't put a stop to this, and the name of our god uh, the name of our goddess will be tarnished. She will be dethroned. That's some powerful god they had there, right? Fully dependent upon the worship of the people to remain on her throne. Not our god. Yahweh sits in the heavens, he does all that he pleases and is not dependent upon his creatures for anything. Well, the religious cloak, it works on these guys. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. They began crying out, saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So great she's not even around today, right? I I didn't see any temples on the way up here. Yet here we are, still preaching the same old, old story. Same way of salvation. Look at verse 29. Luke says, by this time, the whole city was filled with the confusion. With confusion. Again, hundreds of thousands of people in in this city during this time. And they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. That's what mobs do, by the way. You get one or two folks who, who... Start to work up a crowd, right? Next thing you know, you have a large group of people, most who don't even know what they're upset about in the first place. They just want to be a part of the chaos. They want to be a part of the mayhem. That's mob mentality, by the way. Someone once said a mob is a fickle monster. Its passions are easily aroused, and it can be dangerous in the extreme. It can be made to chant and shout, but it can just as easily be made to fear. At heart, a mob is a coward. Remember that when they start showing up at churches as we preach against that which they love. Love of power, love of money, uh, abortion. Again, the LGBTQ agenda. Pedophilia, which is pretty much the same thing. Uh, Pornography, free drugs. Another commentator said this, "'Every mob in its ignorance and blindness and bewilderment "'is a league of frightened men "'that seeks reassurance in collective action.'" In other words, they're cowards, weak men and women coming together by, and being united by rage. But when it's all said and done, they're nothing more than gutless cowards. That's what we see here. Gaius and Aristarchus were known companions of Paul, so they took him out. They dragged him out. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's the word arpidzo. arpadzo. Folks would be familiar with the term Arpadzo to seize, to rapture, but the soon before it intensifies the meeting, they they violently seized them, they violently dragged them out, they aggressively snatched them out, and they brought them to that big old theater that we talked about earlier. Maybe 25,000 people, 25,000 raging religious fanatics. This was not a good situation. Okay, more on that in a moment. First, I don't want you to miss Paul's reaction in verse 30. Okay, look at verse 30. I think this is great. Luke says, and when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Paul's first reaction is not to flee, but to say, man, look at all those people assembled together at one place. That word for assembly there, by the way, is ekklesia, which is where we get the word for church. It was a gathering. It was an assembling of people with one common purpose. This seems like a great opportunity for gospel presentation. He says, man, let me go in there. Not to fight, but to preach. And I think that sums up Paul really well. He, he did say, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. Gain. That's right. Which would have likely happened had he gone in there. He, he, he knew that his hope and trust was, uh, were firmly rooted in the promises of God. He knew that his heart was... Changed by the power of God, and he had seen many other hearts changed by the power of God, and he knew that whatever happened, it would happen according to the sovereign will of God. So he was up for anything if it meant that the gospel would go forth. He says, "Let me at him." Let me ask you this morning: Can the same be said of you? Is this true of you? Are you willing to forsake all for the gospel? Are you willing to put it all on the line for what you know to be true about your God and the promise that he makes to you in his holy word? You know, sometimes I get nervous that we're so used to the creature comforts in this culture that we might not be so bold in our declaration of the truth. They might take away our Amazon account. They might uh, take away our Home Depot credit card or our football games or our enrollment in college or our job or our our house in the burbs, they may not talk to us anymore. They may cancel us. They may throw us in jail or hurt us. So we better just shut up, keep our heads down, which is exactly what they want us to do. But we can't do that, can we? No, that wasn't the apostle Paul's response, was it? No, he wanted to go in there. He had to be thinking, you know, Maybe I go in there and I preach and a bunch of people get converted before I head off to Macedonia. Or, maybe better yet, he goes in there, he's faithful in his proclamation. They tear him limb from limb. And like Stephen, the news of his martyrdom spreads up to the ends of the earth and causes people to come to faith through those means. Oh, well, he gets to be with the Lord in an instant, which is far better, he says. Either way, it's a win-win in the eyes of the apostle. And it can be for you, too, if you believe as he does. But look at the disciples in verse 30. They say, no, 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 don't go in there, Paul. Not this time, okay? Not this time. They weren't the only ones. Luke says the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Don't go in there, Paul. These guys were like the super wealthy Uh, of the culture. They were the influencers, okay? Typically what they said went, okay? And they were friends of Paul. They had a mutual respect for one another, which is really fascinating if you think about it. Uh, These guys were trying to protect him as well. Don't do it, Paul. Don't put yourself in the middle of this mob. And and Paul takes their counsel, okay? He says, okay, okay. You know, maybe he's thinking of this letter to Corinth. He's he's hard-pressed, right? He wants to see them. Maybe he's thinking of the offering for the Jerusalem Christians. So he hangs back. The riot continues. The the confusion only increases. Look at verse 32. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another. For the meeting was in confusion. The majority did not know for what reason they had come together. They didn't even know what they were shouting for anymore. What are we protesting about again? I, I can't remember this. You know, that's the pitfalls of emotionalism, hyper-emotionalism, which, again, is a common tool used to manipulate people throughout all religions, even Christianity, throughout the years. Well, in verse 33, Luke writes that some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. He's the reason. The Jews had put him forward, having motion with his hand. Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. They thought that it's this guy. But when they recognized it was a Jew... A single cry arose from them as well, excuse me, from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, we don't know why they put Alexander forward other than Luke says he was a Jew. Maybe they thought he could calm the crowd, not let this thing thing turn into an anti-Semitic attack. Maybe he was going to say, look, this isn't a Jewish problem here, okay? I know these guys are Jews, but we're not like them. We're different. I don't know. Here's my my big question. Where's Demetrius in all this? He just kind of faded back into the background here after lighting that fuse. Now we don't hear about him anymore, other than his name a little bit later. Well, uh, for two hours, this stadium starts chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Until finally, a, a voice of reason shows up in the city clerk. He's like the mayor of Ephesus, okay, and he was held responsible for how this city was run. Rome uh, held him accountable, so he had his interests to protect as well. Here, verse thirty-five, he comes up, he calms the crowd. He says, "Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great god, or the great Artemis?" and of the image which fell down from heaven. See, they thought that statue fell down from heaven in the form of a meteorite, and that's where they built that temple here. Um, He says, Our city was blessed from the heavens with this image, this temple. We are the epicenter of the whole world for Artemis worship. These are undeniable facts, and because of this, verse 36, you ought to keep calm. Do nothing rash you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are here with him and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, let them bring the charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful meeting. In other words, we have a judicial system that will work all this out. They meet three times a week, let me know of the conflict. I'll make sure you're on the next docket. Now, verse 40, he says, For we are indeed of eh, we indeed were are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no cause for which we can give it an account for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the meeting. And just like that, they take their hands off Gaius, Aristarchus, they turn around, they walk out of the stadium, and they go about their day. The next sentence, chapter 20, verse 1, says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul, having summoned and exhorted the disciples, said farewell, left, went to Macedonia. And that's that. It's a really fascinating account here. And a lot of folks have thought, hmm, well, this was interesting for Luke to include. But why? What was all this about? I mean, there isn't a lot of deep, uh, significant exegesis that can take place in a narrative account like this. Not a lot of doctrinal truths being communicated. So, what do we do with this? Well, I have two very quick takeaways for you this morning. First, I want you to look back up at verse 32. Okay? It says so. Then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the meeting was in confusion. The majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Let me ask you this morning, do you know why you're here? Amen. What are we doing here? Why why are you here this morning? Why are we assembling this morning? What's the purpose of our coming together? Is it because this is what we've always done? Is it because this is what our parents did? Is it because this is what our grandparents did? Is it because this is where our friends are? Is this... Does this happen to be the path you've chosen in society? Is this because you're a conservative? A good old Republican? <laughs> maybe, maybe you're a Christian by name only and you know this is where other conservatives and Republicans and nominal Christians hang out on Sunday mornings. I mean, what are you doing here? Sometimes I think that. I, I, like These people, they come and they sit and they listen to my 50-minute sermons week after week after week. The, the real miracle is that you keep keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but why? why? Why do you keep coming back? Why do true believers come together? Answer, it's not because of the preacher. It's not because it's a cultural thing. No, because it's the power of the gospel. The primary reason we're here is to exalt the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. To to remember together his death, his burial, resurrection, to rejoice together through song and praise and prayer, glorifying the name of the Lord Most High because of what's been done for us by his abundant mercy and compassion we come together, we revel in the abounding love and the amazing grace of our creator who because of the great love with which he loved us, even us sinners, wretched, vile, totally depraved sinners, his enemies, willful transgressors of his holy law, totally deserving of death and an eternity apart from him in hell and the lake of fire, dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of the great love with which he loved us, Made us alive together with Christ. We're no longer dead men walking. We're we're alive. And He raised us up with Him. He, He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He was wounded for our transgressions. He bore our sin in His body on the tree. He saved us by His grace. And we come together, we remember that salvation, and we we proclaim his death until he comes. We come together, we're instructed by the apostles' teaching, to break bread, to fellowship, to pray, all while praising his holy name for the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. That's why we come together. And there should be no confusion about what we're doing here this morning. Should be no confusion. These, these people were confused. They didn't even know what they were doing. Sums up the life of an unbeliever. Second takeaway. We come together, we're instructed, and then we go out into a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. A world who hates us, by the way. Go back to Jesus' words from earlier. You realize this world hates you, right? If you're a believer. This world hates you. John, one of the, the disciples present th- that night when Jesus was betrayed, would go on to write, don't be surprised. Don't marvel if the world hates you. This world hates you. Do you understand that, Christian? Like Paul, you will be persecuted in some form or fashion by a world who hates what you represent because it shines a light on their sin, and they don't want to hear it. Paul would go on to tell Timothy, and Indeed, all who desire to live a godly, uh, godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He said there are many adversaries. So if you know why you're here, you know what's been done for you, and you've seen the example of faithful men and women who came before you, who have given their very lives for the spread of the gospel, I would again ask you the same question. Are you ready for the coming persecution? are you ready and willing to forsake all for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is it that important to you can you as as much as you're able to can you comprehend the significance of the gospel in your life and are you willing to forsake all to remain faithful to it this world this society this culture would like you to tell you to compromise on what you believe to Keep the Jesus talk to yourself and just shut up altogether. But I'm here to tell you, do neither. Be louder. Never compromise. Never compromise. Continue to faithfully proclaim the good news of salvation through the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the only way to the Father. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to go back out those doors into a world that hates you? You say, how can I? How can I be ready? By standing on the promises of his holy and inspired word. By, by continuing to assemble together with like-minded men and women in any capacity, uh, but certainly with the greater assembly on Sunday mornings for as long as we're able and, and, and through complete dependence upon and Surrender to the perfect will of your God, your God whose spirit now dwells on the inside of you. He will give you the words and he will give you the grace. He will give you the strength to be able to remain faithful to his gospel. And you can know that whatever happens, he's he's not only aware of what's going to happen, but he sovereignly ordained for it to happen from before time began and all for our good and all for his glory continue to look at that in Acts. We'll continue to see this very thing unfolding in our remaining time uh, together in Acts. For now, let's give praise to the Father through Jesus the Son. Give him the glory the great things he has done, right? Amen. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great things you have done, mostly sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, save us by your grace alone to die as our sacrifice in our place. Uh, We are so grateful, Lord. We pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. We pray that you would do a work in their heart. You are worthy of their praise as well as ours, and it's a joy and a delight to give it to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.